Well, good morning. Scouts, we're glad that you're here this morning, and uh, we're excited to come together this morning, of course, to praise and worship. Thank you, team, for leading us into the Lord's courts of praise, and uh, it's a great day to be a believer. Amen? We've been studying through 1 Corinthians, and uh, we are turning the corner and coming in the driveway on this epistle, right? We've we're made it into chapter 15 this week before last, and, uh, and <clears throat> I was thinking that I could finish chapter 15 today. It's, I was telling Tim before the service, it's just not possible. There's too much good stuff here to go too fast through it, and the uh, week before last, we looked at 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 11, uh, I think if I'm convicted of this, I was thinking of this as I was writing down some notes and um, studying through this passage, that if I had 30 seconds to communicate one message to someone, this would be it. If I just had 30 seconds to talk to somebody before something drastic happens, or, or maybe it's me, maybe it's them, whatever the scenario is that is floating through your mind and the things that were floating through my mind, it would be this, is that, uh, just like Paul says, for I deliver to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried and that he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures, 1 Corinthians 15, <clears throat> 3 and 4. Because that is the essence of the message of the Bible. Everything in the Old Testament points towards those events Everything in the New Testament, the gospel kind of builds up and, and then we see it happen. And everything in the epistles, everything that we read about in the epistles, the life by the Spirit that, that God has for his people, is based on those events. That's the essence of the, of the gospel. That is the gospel. And that's what's under attack in our culture today, bar none. Like if they can go after one thing, this is it. And they chip away and they dig at this, that, and the other thing and try to create disbelief, but all these things happen according to the scriptures, the Bible says, according to Old Testament prophets, according to, uh, as Paul says in later verses here in the same passage, 1 through 11, uh, hey, he says, you can go talk to the people that were there that saw the resurrected Christ. If you don't believe, you know, he's saying in essence, a kind of a summary of those verses, hey, Corinthians, if you don't believe me, go talk to the people that saw him themselves. Go talk to him. Go talk to the, the apostles. Go talk to the 500. Go talk to Jesus' half-brother James who saw his own half-brother in a resurrected body. And definitely Jesus came. He died on the cross, was buried, rose on the third day. There's one aspect of this whole account of the gospel, of what Jesus came to do, that gets a lot of it gets a lot of action in the coming verses, and that is, is the resurrection. That's the one aspect of the message that Paul elaborates on the most through the rest of chapter 15. And through history, all through history, and even today, we have a lot of the same types of questions. I believe that the Apostle Paul was answering and correcting for the church in Corinth. In other words, some of those questions are, so what happens when we die? What happens when we die? The number one fear, other than public speaking, is people are afraid of dying. 
And the two kind of go hand in hand. I'm just going to tell you, right? They go hand in hand. They don't go hand in hand. Well, hopefully, if I have a heart attack and hit the carpet, um, I'll be in a better place. But beyond that, is, is, is we're afraid as a culture, we're scared to death of death. Is there something more is another question. Do I cease to exist altogether? Is there nothing more? Is there something more? Does something else happen to me? Mom and dad, can you answer some of those questions for your kids? Can you take them in the scriptures and show them what the Bible says about these things? Because they're going to, if they have, let me tell you, if your kids have not asked these questions already, they will. You will have those conversations. And are you confident in what you believe is true? Do you believe the right things are true? To share with them what it all looks like and how it goes down according to the Bible. See, uh, just because we're believers doesn't mean that we're exempt. We have many of the same questions. And likely someone will ask us some of those questions. And like I mentioned, some of perhaps so definitely your kids are going to ask them, but maybe it's a neighbor, maybe it's a friend, maybe it's a coworker, maybe it's somebody that's struggling health-wise. They want to know what's going to happen after they take their last breath. A guy that I deeply admire, I've read his book, I've watched the movie, he had a lot of the same questions. In fact, he set out, he set out decades ago to prove that what the Bible says is false. He set out, he was challenged, he was challenged by a co-worker that was a Christian. Hey, if you're so good at your job at being an investigative reporter, why don't you just go out and, improve, and, and prove to the world that Jesus did not rise from the grave? Lee Strobel says this, and I will tell you, I'll give you a spoiler alert. Uh, his investigation led him to put his faith and trust in Christ and to receive salvation from Jesus. He said this, the resurrection is the supreme vindication of Jesus' divine identity and his inspired teaching. It's the proof of his triumph over sin and death. It's a foreshadowing of the resurrection of his followers. It's the basis of Christian hope. It's the miracles of all miracles. I think fundamentally the question of whether or not Christianity makes sense, whether it withstands the scrutiny, whether the evidence supports it or hurts it, always comes down to one thing, the resurrection. That's where Lee Strobel stood, and, and where he stood before the Lord was looking at the evidence, honestly, carefully examining the evidence that, he, that everything that he could pull together about the resurrection of Jesus. And he was a devout atheist. He denied who God was, denied that God existed staunchly, it almost destroyed their marriage, but the end of it all, there was only one path for him to take when he looked at all that evidence, and that was a path of surrender. So we don't want to shy away from this conversation as Christ's followers. We don't want to have the wrong answers. We don't want to have no answers. Uh, we want to do this. We want to make sure that we understand what the Word says. That's why chapter 15, along with other passages that we're going to look at, that's why chapter 15 specifically of 1 Corinthians is so critical, 
so foundational, so central to the Christian faith. Let's dive in there. Grab your copy or watch on the screen. Here we go. 1 Corinthians 15. Let's start in verse 12. The Apostle Paul says this, Now if Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do, you, how do some among you say that there's no resurrection from the dead? But if there's no resurrection from the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty, and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up. If, in fact... The dead do not rise. Verse 16, For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. Really the central theme of this chapter is 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 that as Christ followers, our resurrection hope, our resurrection confidence, really, is based on who Jesus is. Now, it seems kind of strange, as we start off there in verse 12, it seems kind of strange that Paul would, would take the approach that he did. He takes this kind of a backsided approach, he dives right into the debate. There was a lot of cultural debate in, in, in the first century about the resurrection. There was those that didn't believe there was any resurrection. There were those that believed that when you die, you just cease to exist. You just go in a hole in the ground and get eaten by worms, so on and so forth. There's nothing more there. And he takes this, this debate and dives right into the middle of it, and he uses what's called this, deductive arguments. These arguments are easily spotted, if you would, in your Bible, if Man, don't be afraid to write in your own Bible. Uh, don't be afraid to highlight. But these arguments are really categorized. You can see them real clearly because they're, they're kind of these, if you will, kind of mathematical equations in a sense. It's the if-then statements. He uses a bunch of these if-then, if-then, if-then. You see it all through that passage. He's kind of using a little reverse psychology, so to speak, on the Corinthians. And this is his reasoning uh, put it in different terms, perhaps. If there's no principle of resurrection, then Jesus did not rise from the dead. That's where we start. That's where he starts the argument. He, he's laying out a negative case to prove that it's actually true. That's what he's going about. So he says, if there's no resurrection, then Jesus didn't rise from the, from the dead, obviously. If there's not any for anybody, then there's none for Jesus as well. And if Jesus did not rise from the dead, then, the dead has no, then death has power over him and has defeated him. That's a logical conclusion, right? If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, if he did, wasn't resurrected, then death is actually one and has defeated Christ rather than the other way around. If death has power over Jesus, this is the big one. If death has power over Jesus then the only logical conclusion is then he would not be God. He wouldn't be deity. He wouldn't be God, right? And if Jesus is not God, then he cannot offer a complete sacrifice for sins. If he was not God, then he wouldn't be perfect. God is perfect. It takes a perfect sacrifice to sacrifice for our sins, and if Jesus is not God, then he cannot offer a complete sacrifice for sins. If Jesus cannot offer a complete sacrifice for sins, our sins are not completely paid for. 
They're partially paid for, maybe. There's an attempt to pay for them. There might be really good intentions. You know, there, there might be some sort of a, you know, paying some sort of a due or, or what, however you want to phrase it. We could, we could try. We could try. We have a, all of the Old Testament kind of puts it out there as a temporary measure, as a look forward to the coming perfect sacrifice. So we could go back to that system, I suppose. But if Jesus cannot offer complete sacrifice, our sins are not completely paid for. And if my sins are not completely paid for before God, uh, then there's this, then I'm still in my sins. Then I'm still in my sins. And therefore, if Jesus is not risen, he's not able to save. If that's true. If that's true. Charles Spurgeon says this, if Jesus rose, then this gospel is what it professes to be. If he rose not from the dead, then it's all deceit and delusion. That's the bottom line. Martin Luther says this, everything depends on our retaining a firm hold on this doctrine in particular, for if this one totters and no longer counts, all the others will lose their value and validity. See, here's how much that hangs on the resurrection of Christ. There's really, there's probably more than this. I, I put down these five just for kind of maybe a reference point. It's a list that I want to go back and continue. But there's five particular Bible teachings that connect to the resurrection. One is the divinity of Jesus, as I mentioned above. The divinity of Jesus rests on the resurrection of Christ. You see that stated in Romans 1.4. Uh, the sovereignty of Jesus rests on the resurrection, on his resurrection. Romans chapter 14, verse 9. Our justification, in other words, us being right before God, rests on the resurrection of Jesus. Romans 4, 25 is a great verse for that. Our regeneration rests on the resurrection of Jesus. You can look at 1 Peter 1, 3. And our own ultimate resurrection. In other words, when you die... As a Christ follower, when I die as a Christ follower, what God's going to do there, the resurrected body that we will get at some point in history, let's phrase it that way. Hopefully it doesn't happen today. <laughs> Maybe it will. I don't know. That would be a good thing. My shoulder wouldn't hurt so bad. Our resurrection rests solely on the resurrection of Christ. Romans eight eleven is the verse that kind of looks to that. You can take those and read through that list. And of course, Romans gets the lion's share because Paul wrote, writes the book of Romans to really square up and solidify uh, the nuts and bolts, the mechanics of the gospel of what Jesus has done. I love this verse also from Charles Spurgeon. He says this, the fact is that the silver thread of resurrection runs all through the blessings from regeneration onward onto our eternal glory, and it really binds them all together. That's what the resurrection does. That's what our hope in something better than what we got now, if you want to put it that way, a resurrected body, one that doesn't fail, one that doesn't you know, faint, one that doesn't you know, have all of the encumbrances that, that ours have now, takes us on to eternal glory and binds them all together. The Old Testament prophets actually look forward as well. We talked about this on Sunday night that uh, there's all kinds of these 
Old Testament prophecies that speak to what's going on. Isaiah prophesied about the resurrection in a sense in Isaiah 26, 19. Let's take a look at that real quick. He prophesies that God would raise up his people. He says in Isaiah 26, 19, your dead shall live, speaking, of, speaking to the Lord, speaking about God. Your dead shall live together with my dead body, they shall arise. Awake and seeing you who dwell in the dust, for your dew is like the dew of herbs and the earth shall cast out the dead. A clear picture of what's going to happen in the future. And it's really Jesus who invites us to believe that he is who he says he is. That's really the hinge point. That's really the nuts and bolts. When somebody asks me, and uh, I, I ask him, I said, do you want my opinion, or do you, do, you, do you just want what the Bible says? Or, because here's the thing. We can have all kinds of opinions, but it really boils down to this. Do you believe Jesus is who Jesus says he is? I don't care what Mark says. It doesn't matter what Les says or Tim or anybody else in this room. It doesn't matter what your opinion is. Your opinion matters little in light of what the Word says, right? So is Jesus who is Jesus who Jesus says he is, right? In the middle of the seven I am statements in the Gospel of John, I am the bread of life, John 6, 35. I don't know if Kayla has this whole, you have this whole list up there? I won't read through all of them. Just wrote a quick little description of each one though. But in the middle of, square in the middle and I find it intriguing that Jesus spoke these words in the middle of these seven statements. I'm the bread of life. I'm the light of the world. I'm the door of the sheep. Here's the middle one. I'm the resurrection and the life. Jesus says in John eleven twenty five, death is not final, is not the final word for those that are in Christ. It's not. It's not the final word. So if it's not the final word, why are we stressed about it? Why does, why does our culture get so stressed over being dead? I get it. It's painful. I've lost people that are close to me. It's not easy. I understand that. I'm not making light of death. I'm just saying in light of what the Bible says, maybe a good relook at it for our culture would actually be encouraging. But our culture has gone long ways to fade away and to hide people away from Death, And I know many, many, many people that are scarred well into their 20s and 30s and beyond because they were hidden away and not taught what happens when somebody passes away. So now when somebody passes away, they just freak out. They come unhinged. They don't know how to cope. They don't know how to deal with it. Rather, I think we have a straightforward obligation to teach what the Bible says, to encourage people that this is the one way out of here. If there's a better story, this is what Paul, uh, Phil Robertson says, hey, if there's a better plan to get off this earth, I haven't read it. This one is the only one that makes sense. And this is the only one that's not dependent upon my own good efforts because they fall short every time. Back in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul reaffirms Jesus' truth claims, Jesus' truth claims of John 11, he reaffirms them and turns really from a negative side of the argument to the positive side of the argument that Jesus is who he claims to be. He goes on to say, look in your Bibles, 1 Corinthians 15. We'll pick it up in verse 20. 
He just simply says straightforward, but now Christ is risen from the dead. Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, those who have passed away. And Paul describes Jesus as the first fruits of the resurrection, the first to live in a resurrected body. Uh, yeah, there were other people that were raised from the dead. There was other accounts. There's a couple that I've mentioned. There's the widow's son in 1 Kings 17, and there's Lazarus, Jesus rising, one of his good friends from death, Lazarus in John 11, 38 through 34, or through 44, excuse me. 30, wouldn't it be 38 through 34. The number system doesn't work that way. I know enough about math to know that it doesn't work backwards. But there's those two accounts, and there's probably, uh, there might be a couple more that aren't coming to my mind right off. But they were not raised from the dead to live in a resurrected body. They were raised from the dead back to their original body. That's a huge difference. It's a huge difference. Only Jesus has received and lives in a resurrected body. Uh, what does that look like? How, does that, uh, how, how can we understand that? Um, well, A, Jesus was recognizable. In a re his resurrected body, he was recognizable, right? Uh, he was recognizable. His followers knew who he was. Uh, he had an actual body. He walked. He talked. He asked Thomas to come touch his wounds. His wounds were still visible, right? So there was, there was a physical aspect to his resurrected body. He ate. He sat down with his guys on the shore of Galilee and had a fish fry, right? He ate fish. He ate honeycomb. So he was able to consume. Yet, I don't think in a resurrected body that we're, we're bound by those limits like there's a necessity there, right? Because there's other, uh, there's other things that were... Uh, Maybe a little crazier than the fact that somebody with a resurrected body would eat. Uh, he could function in the natural world, yet he wasn't depended on or limited by the laws of nature. So he would just show up. He shows up. He's gone. Right? He's not limited by, he was not limited by the laws of nature. There's really, there's ten different times where Jesus, Jesus either shows up or disappears and uh, interacts with his disciples. Now, Paul mentions this phrase, first fruits. He uses this Old Testament description here. He says, Jesus has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. The first fruits, the feast of first fruits, was observed the day after Sabbath following Passover, Leviticus 23 9 through 14. I'll give you that description. Significantly, Jesus rose from the dead on exactly the same day as the Feast of First Fruits, the day after the Sabbath following the Passover. That's why he fulfills that description. Not only that, the offering of the Feast of First Fruits was a bloodless grain offering. Uh, you can see that in Leviticus 2. No atoning sacrifice was necessary. The Passover lamb had just been sacrificed, so if you kind of follow through, uh, the, the connection between the Passover and the Feast of First Fruits. So the Passover lamb, the, the spotless sacrifice had just been offered, so there was no atoning sacrifice really necessary. The Passover lamb had just been sacrificed. This corresponds perfectly with the resurrection of Jesus because his death ended the need for sacrifice, having proved a perfect and complete atonement once and for all. 
The resurrection of Jesus is also the first fruits of our resurrection in the sense that he is our entrance fee. We can use that phrase. He's our entrance fee to a resurrected life. Jesus paid our admission to the resurrection, you might say. And Paul masterfully tells the abbreviated storyline of the history of man in the next few verses where Paul says in verse 21, for since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterwards those who are Christ at his coming. So you have mankind, you have Adam, the representation of mankind, Adam sinning, disobeying God's word. That sin then uh, led to death. It separated Adam and Eve from God's presence, from God's communion, from God's uh, relationship with God. There was separation there. There was separation. It led to death. And check it out in Genesis. Ever since, mankind has really had two enemies. You could say, well, maybe we had more than two enemies, but we have two enemies that really count. One is sin, and the other one's death. We have two enemies that keep, that keep banging away at mankind from one century to the next, one century to the next, and one is sin, and the other one's death. And they seem inescapable. They seem like you just can't get a handle on it. They seem like there's no good answer. There is a good answer. It's called the good news because Jesus solved our sin problem at the cross and he solved our death problem with his resurrection. That's the good news of the resurrection. That's why, hey, what's going to happen is going to happen. But if you believe in Christ, you don't have to stress about it. You don't have to worry about it. God's got a plan already laid out for you. So it's all good news. There is no bad news. Paul gives us a picture then of what will happen in the future. He says this in verse 24, Then comes the end. Maybe I should back up. But each one in verse 23, But each one in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward those who are Christ at his coming. That's the good news for us. Because you want to be one of those. You want to be in that category of those who are Christ. That's why I say for the believer, it's all good news. Then 24 says this, Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God to the... Excuse me. When he, belie- when he delivers the kingdom of God to the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and authority and power. This is why I say it's all good news. It's all on the upside. For he must reign until he puts an end all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. For he has put all things under his feet. But when he says all things are under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is is accepted. Now when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. There's an interesting piece in the, that's critical to our understanding this in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 10, where we see God's eternal purposes throughout history. And Ephesians 10 says this, is that the dispensation of the fullness of time, he might gather, speaking of Christ, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth 
in him. Here in 1 Corinthians 15, we see Paul kind of looking forward, right? We see in Ephesians, we see Paul looking backwards and saying, this is God's master plan. Now in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, we see Paul saying, all right, then that's what happened then to the, he's saying that to the Ephesians. Now in 1 Corinthians 15, it's all right, this is kind of the look forward. This is how it's going to go. We see Paul looking forward to the time where all things are gathered and are under Christ's control. Where he says he delivers the kingdom to God the Father. Jesus is in the gathering and delivering business. A big scheme of all eternity. The last enemy there that Paul talks about. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. Uh, Notice that he uses specifically the word destroyed. The last enemy will be, future tense, will be destroyed. Jesus has defeated death. He defeated death on the cross and, and resurrection from the grave. But one day death will be completely abolished. It won't even be a thing. So it's defeated now, but someday it's going to be destroyed. Someday it's going to be abolished. Someday it won't even be a thought. Paul goes on defending the resurrection, and we're going to wind down with this last point. He kind of defends the resurrection. I I consider it this, and maybe it's my take, but it's kind of a weird example in my mind. Uh, Paul says this in verse 29, in defense of the resurrection, and you kind of have to understand what's going on there a little bit culturally to know why he's saying these things. He says, otherwise, uh, what what will they do who are baptized for the dead. If the dead do not rise at all, why then are they baptized for the dead? And why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? I affirm by the boasting in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If in the manner of men I have fought with the beast in Ephesus, what advantages is it to me? If the dead do not rise, let's eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. He uses this strange example. I call it strange from the standpoint that I don't know of anybody that's ever been baptized for the dead. It doesn't make any sense to me. We just had four baptisms in the last two weeks. We didn't say anything about the people that had died prior to and anything about them being baptized on anybody else's behalf. And I don't think that we should. And here's the reason why. This wasn't a Christian practice. This was a cultural practice. Paul's not endorsing this practice, baptizing for the dead. Uh, and here's the reason why. It was a cultural practice. It was, a, it was based on pagan traditions. And he's kind of saying, uh, he's not endorsing it, but he's just using that worldly example even as a way of saying, uh, hey, if there's no hope for even those worldly people, uh, we're fooling ourselves. We might as well party it up. But there is hope. There is hope because Jesus is raised from the dead. And this hope, this is the hope that we're called to. It's the hope that we're called to spread to those that are around us. It's the hope that we're called to infuse into our conversations. It's the hope that we're to broadcast out in a hurting world that doesn't have hope, that's an increasingly hopeless, if I can use that phrase. We, We live in a world that's an increasingly hopeless We should be broadcasting these seeds of hope like we're spreading grass onto our yard. Grass seed onto a 
freshly planted yard. That's the picture. That's the idea. By the way, he doesn't end there. I wanted to add this one last verse, two verses actually. Paul's not being flippant about what's going to happen when he says, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. He's, maybe he's being a little sarcastic at the cultural example. But he kind of tunes him up in this sense. He says this, do not be deceived. He says, don't give in to that cultural mindset. Don't give in to the cultural ways. Don't be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. Awake to righteousness and do not sin. For some do not have the knowledge of God. And he says, I speak this to your shame. It's a corrective measure that he's coming in and saying, don't, don't buy into the culture. There's, a, there's some, maybe even some there in that first century church that, that didn't have knowledge of God, so they were trying to bring all the culture into the church, trying to say, hey, let's make this a party, right? Let's have a good time. Let's live it up. Let's do what we normally do here in Corinth. And he says, hey, 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 church, don't be deceived. Don't be deceived buying into the cultural way of doing things, what's normal. Evil company corrupts good habits. No, instead, you're to be awakened to righteousness and do not sin. Some people don't understand what I'm talking about, he says, but this is the call for every believer. Evil company corrupts good habits. We're going to be affected by what our company or those that are closest to us believe. Do we understand that as a church? Like the people that you hang out with, I'm not saying that we shouldn't hang out with people who maybe are a little rough around the edges. Let's put it this way. The people that are influential in your life and in my life are going to affect how I walk and how you walk. Right? The people that, that we really trust their opinion, we really trust their, their, their knowledge, we really t- trust and, and get guidance from, those are the people... Those are the people that are going to affect how you live your Christian life. People that are influential are going to make a difference. They're going to make a stamp. They're going to make an imprint into your habits. And if they're evil, they're going to corrupt those good habits. If they're righteous, if they're right with God, they're going to build your habits they're going to encourage your habits, right? It's really simple. Think about it this way. <clears throat> uh, having good habits takes diligence, doesn't it? It takes diligence. Like you have to stay with it, right? Anybody, raise your hand. It's free to vote on this one. Who finds it tough on a daily basis to get into the Word of God? I find it tough. You know why it's tough? Because it's a discipline. That's why it's tough. Right? Not only is it a discipline, and so it's tough because it's a discipline, it's tough because you got an enemy, you got two enemies, your flesh and the enemy of your souls, the devil, that's that's luring you away from what you need to do. Oh, there's less. I'm gonna I'm gonna distract less this morning. Right? Less is hard to distract. I'm just saying, 
it's hard to stay with things that are, take effort and discipline. Now, who finds it real easy to just fall into bad habits? They take no discipline at all. You don't have to be, yeah, exactly. I've raised both hands, right? It's easy to fall into habits that are bad. It doesn't take any work. It doesn't take any effort. We just naturally gravitate that way. The question we have to ask ourselves is the worship teams come. Actually, hold on, worship team. We're going to do communion. I forgot about that. But the question that we have to ask ourselves, actually I have several questions. There's a little bit of a, uh, a, little bit of a uh, survey that we can do in our own life. And you can do it in your own life. You can do it, moms and dads, you can do it as a couple. You can do it in the, look at the life of your family. We can ask these four questions about the company that we keep. Do the influential people in my life, here's number one, do the influential people in my life, do they believe that the Bible is the authoritative word of God that affects every aspect of life? Do the people that are speaking into my life, the people that, that I draw influence from, do they believe that God's word is authoritative and speaks to every area of life that is truly God's word, not just a list of, you know, or a, a collection of historical fables and all of that, that all that culture wants to kind of make it to be. But do the influential people in my life believe that the Bible is the authoritative word of God affecting, in other words, has, has something to say about every aspect of my life? Do they believe that? Do they believe that's true? Do the influential people in your life, in my life, do they demonstrate that they're under God's authority and are operating with God's authority? Do they understand that? Do the people that are influential, the people that are, that are affecting my decisions, do they understand, are they, are they not, are they under God's authority, are they operating under God's authority, or are they not? And are they, if they are, are they, or are they operating with God's authority in their life? Are they handling their own business in a way that reflects that the word of God is true and is leading and governing their lives? They're being led and, and controlled by the Holy Spirit through the word of God. Are they operating in that manner, or are they not? I'll tell you, this question, this question will tell you a lot about the influence in your life if we're willing to just stop and really evaluate these things. Do they demonstrate that they're under God's authority, A, and B, are they operating with God's authority in a godly way? You can tag that on the back of that question. The third one is, do the influential people in your life, in my life, do they encourage, exhort, and challenge, and nudge you and I closer to Christ or do they kind of let us drift away from Christ? Are they challenging us? Are they encouraging us? Are they the type of person that is willing to kind of at times when it's needed kind of get up in your grill, kind of get up in your face and have an honest conversation because they saw something they weren't quite sure? Are they the type of person that does that or the type of person that's cheering you on in your faith or the type of person that is constantly pointing you towards Christ or the type of person that's kind of pointing you in different directions that are to them more important? 
or they see for you more important? Are they that type of person? The fourth one, do the influential people in your life, do they display over time a transparent and authentic walk with Christ? Do they display over time a transparent and authentic walk with Christ? Are they real? Are they not real? Are they authentic in a sense that that they're the same person you know, here on a Sunday when we're all supposed to act good, <laughs> we're supposed to be good, are they that same way, you know, at a Friday night basketball team, a game when their team's losing by 50? You know. <laughs> I'm stepping on my own toes. <laughs> right? Are they authentic? Are they real? Are they transparent? Are they that same person in the workplace, in the marketplace, at school? Is their walk with Christ authentic? See, that's who we're supposed to be for one another. As we cheer one another on, as we share with one another the hope that we have in Christ, both in this life and in the next, that's the resurrection part. Paul says, hey, you're not going to get good encouragement to understand and believe that someday Christ has a resurrected body from you. You're not going to get that if you're hanging out with people that don't believe that that's true. People that believe, or evil company he calls them, people that believe something different. So we have to be very careful about our influence. We want and we need, shall I say, we must have people in our lives that are pointing us to Christ, encouraging us in Christ, that are sharing their story, their redemption story in in life, what God is doing in their life. They're sharing the hope that they have in Christ for today and for tomorrow. And they have confidence in that. I'm not saying that we have to have all the answers, that we have to have everything just down pat, that we have to know everything of everything. I'm simply saying we need to know the basics of the gospel. David, will you come on up and lead us in communion?